Good day. This is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. Today we're speaking with Jim Bergamini, President and CEO of Ditan Labs. To learn more about them, you can go to daitanlabs.com. We're speaking with Jim today about current and next generation telecom. Uh, to get edited transcripts of this interview, they're available at intlalliances.com and midwestbusiness.com. To jump right in, from your perspective, would you say telecom is different in different parts of the world, or is it pretty much the same everywhere? I would say that telecommunications is very much, from a service provider perspective, the same everywhere in the world with respect to the actual service providers demanding carrier grade, carrier class, five nine type reliability in the network. Mm-hmm. What's different uh, throughout the world is um, the consumption of services, meaning in Japan, in many cases, in, in Japan, China, they're early adapters. So they'll, they'll, they'll want technology, they'll chew on technology much quicker, absorb it, and uh, Europe pretty much the same way. You see that with text messaging and a lot of other technologies. Uh, so the, the end users and the way they use technology in some cases is certainly different country to country but with respect to what service providers demand, in many cases, it's very, very similar. So can you give a few more specific examples on a country-by-country basis? In other words, you mentioned text messaging in Europe. Anything else coming soon from those other places that we haven't seen or haven't implemented here? Um, Well, certainly in places like Europe, voice technology has been prevalent for some time now. Mm -hmm. We, We just are, you know, with the advent of... Vantage and Skype and others work. It's sort of one of your four states with respect to voice technology. But it's been around for some time. Voice over, over the internet. Sure. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Skype is uh, headquartered and originated out of, out of the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. I've been traveling to Europe quite a bit, traveling to Asia, and my past jobs. And you've seen that type of technology around. You've seen a lot of text messaging around. I mean, they are text messaging. Savvy in those in those markets of the world. We're just getting on board maybe the last year or so. Um, I'm just curious about text messaging. They don't have any different keyboards than we do, do they? No, it's not. In many cases, the actual handsets themselves are, are very similar to what we're now seeing. Um, but you know, it's a cultural thing. You see, uh, younger kids in Asia, you know, kids in Europe young adults in Europe uh, moving along a keyboard with their index finger and thumb at such a rapid pace where it's pretty funny. I see my, I see my daughter and her friends and other people even around here in the train station and, you know, they're thumbing through like a person who just, uh, you know, was introduced to the typewriter. So you can see that we're just getting used to it. Just like anything else, that technology will be absorbed and, and, and be sort of, uh, you know, incorporated into the daily regime and then moving on to the next thing. Big things, ICTV, uh, Internet Protocol TV, uh, IMS, uh, Internet Protocol uh, uh, Multimedia Solutions, meaning no matter if you're, you're over, you know, communicating over DSL, cable modem, traditional telephony, telephony line, wireless, You'll, you're, you have one number that will pretty much follow you globally. Some of these mm-hmm. things are already prevalent in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. Some are prevalent in, in Asia. Mm-hmm. You're seeing a little bit more of it. You, you saw it at Supercon this year. Mm-hmm. You saw it in, at the 3G conference in Khan, Camp, uh, the, the IMF, IP, uh, multimedia services. Mm-hmm. It's, it's catching on. 
the use of those technologies in some cases is certainly more more prevalent maybe a couple years earlier than the U.S. We have this tendency to sort of be a little bit later in adapting. Our networks are wonderful. Our infrastructure, our technology is wonderful. It's the users. Originally, they just wanted good, solid dial tone, good connections on their wireless technology. Now they're looking for more features. Okay. And we may have already answered my next question. What's new in telecom? In other words, you deal in R&D, you're looking yeah. at upcoming things. What can you divulge that your customers are investing so in? So what I ask my, we have a, a core partner team. Our core partner team consists of myself, my co-founder, Augusto, who is um, a, a buff in, uh, in a minute, who's a real technology buff. Okay. And you'll learn throughout the course of this uh, interview that I know about technology, but I'm not down to the business bites level. And our, and, our, and our other founders are really also into the nucleus into the business bites. So what we try to pride ourselves on in Viking Labs is not just attending to the, to the carrier-grade needs of vendors in the U.S. and Europe, but also to think ahead of the curve. What's the next innovation out there? So we have special teams of our core partner team that focus on some of the things that I just talked about. Features with respect to what can be uh, the, the class five features, the traditional telephony features and something above and beyond what you see in your standard wireline on in a voice in a voice over internet protocol environment. Khalid and 9-11 are, are some of the things that are necessary that we quite haven't figured out yet. They're looking at that. If we, if we can do something in that respect, you know, that'll be some of the, 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 the holy grail, if you will. Um, with respect to IMS, Internet Protocol uh, Multimedia Services, we're, we're looking at that in terms of features. It's all about the features. It's all about pretty much what drives service providers' business plans. In other words, what makes money. We're not just developing and designing technology for the sake of designing technology. We're not just taking customer requirements. Since we want to be an R&D team to our customers, our extension to their team, our preference is not to just take requirements documents and to crank out code, uh, source code. Our, our preference is to do that, but say, hey, what did you think about this? Did you think about this? Did you think about the evolution of that? So things like LIMAX, Wi-Fi, um, believe it or not, here's one, uh, orthogonal time division multiplexing. You may have heard of OTDM, orthogonal time division multiplexing, is basically getting more horsepower out of your wireless networks. It clearly is similar in very simple terms. Uh, you know, you have, you have the width of a, of a typical interstate is so many lanes, and you can get so many cars on that interstate. The final time division multiplexing is basically taking that same infrastructure, the wireless infrastructure, and just cranking up the volume in terms of the level of throughput you can get. Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit out there. I mean, it truly is. Yeah, beyond CDMA, GSM. Beyond CDMA, GSM, um, certainly uh, TDMA. Mm-hmm. It's something that basically packs a little bit more punch and wireless networks. So, you, so it's one well, of What kind of throughput will you be getting with the OTDM? You know, to be honest with you, I, I couldn't speak to the, to the specifics. Um, okay. This is where Abusa was really sort of. Yeah, but you can add it there. Pick things up. But. Um, you know, um, IPTV. You know, uh, you know, your 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 TV will be much more than what it is today in terms of integrating PC functionality, voicemail functionality, 
your, 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 your wireline uh, technology in your house, your wireless technology, you know, integrated TiVo and all these neat things. It, you know, the telecommunications industry for all intents and purposes, and I said this 10 years ago, I remember I was in a meeting uh, in Japan, and this is a little bit of an offshoot, and I was pretty much laughed at when, when I was with AT&T, and we, we knew we were on the verge of spinning off and going into, uh, into Lucent, and that was uh, in April of 96, I believe, is when we had the IPO. Who, who should our next CEO be, or who should, who should run Lucent? And I said, you know, you, we need to think about this industry, and I, this was 1995. We need to think about this industry as not a telecommunications industry, but a, an entertainment, entertainment industry. It's really, that's really what it's all about, not entertainment in, in a literal sense, but when you're talking about morphing wireline, wireless, gaming, PC, cellular, TiVo, cable TV, satellite, let's face it, a lot of those things are about not just communications, but, you know, entertaining our, 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 our young population, um, and as well as doing what you need to do as a, as a business person. Do you mean as a pipe to provide the entertainment or as the content of the entertainment? It's really, it's really both. It's the pipe that allows you to manage disparate networks because you have different networks all throughout the world and even within the United States and Latin America and Asia and Europe. Uh, within those continents, you have disparate networks. You have different service providers who have different ideas on how they want to manage their network, OAN and P. You have different views of what what, what features are needed, what's going to sell, what's not going to sell. Um, but it's, 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 it's the features and it's the, it's, the, it's the way those networks are envisioned to run. They all have to be integrated and for all kinds of purposes, you know, it's, it's not just communications. It's, it's a form of... Um, you know, you see, you see your kids, you see my kids, you see other people communicating in ways that you never thought they'd be communicating. Um, I, I read once that um, you don't grow up, something like you don't grow up with technology. You know, if you think about that, technology, actually the quote is, technology is something you don't grow up with. Mm-hmm. My kid doesn't see instant messaging or PC and all the neat gaming and, and and, you know, iPod and all, as technology. That's something that she should have. Now, we look at it as, wow, that's technology, because we're, we're much older. And I think it was somebody from Apple or something that made, made the comment. But it's, it's so true. Technology is something you don't grow up with. Technology is something that you and I look at as people use it, that we didn't use as a, as a, as a child. So it's a different mindset. It's a different, uh, and, if, and if the telecommunications companies, service providers, and, and vendors think of it that way, We'll sort of sit back, take a breath, and think about what it is that's, that's around the curve. So the next best technology, what's the innovation itself and its money, and some of these things I've talked about in terms of IPT and uh, more, more throughput on your wireless networks and how to, how to uh, you know, use copper in your studies. And there's so much copper buried around, and there's obviously a lot of dark fiber but how do you use that copper technology without having to dig it all off? And I can't remember some of this technology. We're looking at it. It's interesting because I don't know if you read my last interview with Jeff Kasselman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's involved in real estate, and he travels around Asia, went to 12 cities and seven countries looking for the latest and greatest in building technology. And part of what he brought up was a different concept for the digital divide. In other words, the difference between older 
what he termed analog decision makers. In other words, older folks who are used to using analog tools to make decisions and newer, younger decision makers who are used to using digital tools. Yeah. All the things that you're mentioning that we should take for granted and, and assume and that kind of stuff. And it sounds like the same kind yeah, of thing. I mean, and it's not insulated to just telecom. I mean, I'll be honest sure. with you. A friend of mine was a, was a general dentist in Naperville and um, was a dental school 35 years ago. He's basically using some very fundamental technology in his office. And then you go to other other dentists and there's there's optics and there's different uh, different tools that make him that allow him to do his job much more efficiently. Sure. So whether it's medicine or telecommunications, it's all what we, you know what we cut our teeth on and the countries are yeah. part in that pun. There's a pun. There's a pun. I didn't even think about that. Oh well. Um, okay, moving right along. What's different about seeking partners south of the border? I know you've got experience well, there. We're not. Dyson Labs is not specifically seeking partners. Okay. Just given your experience having sought partners. Right. Uh, let me ask you this. Are you coming from the point of view of our, our target customer, our, our vendors in the U.S. and in Europe? What's different about them seeking us as a partner, or what's different about us seeking partners? I wasn't quite sure. You seeking out people like your partners in Brazil? Um, so, let me be clear. We're not looking... In my, in my capacity right now, we're not looking for partners per se. We and we are we we mine and find best and breed pedigree engineers to, to bring into our company to support our target customers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're saying you know if we're bringing in other entities that would no, I, I guess I'm just getting to you know how did you form and build the relationship with your partners in Brazil? Okay. Oh, oh, my partners, the co-founding partners. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Scratch <laughs> I'm thinking partners from the point of view of like, uh, you know, like distributors and, and things like that. The partners of the... So, if you rewind back to 1999, um, mm-hmm. when I was working with Lucent, um, I was in the M&A, in, in an M&A acquisition capacity, and we were looking at, at companies to acquire. And one of the things that we did was Brazil was a burgeoning market, a huge burgeoning market in fixed-line, uh, fixed wireline, and many other areas. We, need to, we needed to break into Brazil in, in a big way. We did, who were you doing M&A for? So two companies that we stumbled on, and, and this gets to some of your other questions later on in terms of privatization. Brazil privatized in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That was an inflection point in Brazil. Things got to be very, very competitive, and for us to be to be competitive in Brazil, we needed to look for two really savvy technology companies that had central office equipment, wireline, wireless technology. Two of which were Batik uh, and Zetex. Batik and Zetex were, were acquired fully by Lucent. They don't exist anymore because they've morphed into Lucent as a result of the acquisition in 1986. The co-founder of Zetex is my co-founder, Augusto Savio Calcante. Augusto um, was a co-founder of Zetex, which was about a $50 million a year business in Brazil. Not bad. I mean, good-sized business in Brazil. It wasn't, uh, you know, excuse me, on Nortel or Cisco, but they competed against Motorola and Nortel Cisco um, uh, 
Alcatel, Ericsson, you know. Is they a hardware company? Network hardware and software. They did hardware and software development. Complete. They had manufacturing, CFO, customer technical support. It was a complete company. The company itself was about 200 and something people. The R&D team was about 30, 40 people. Augusto, as a co-founder and a technical guy, ran the R&D team. Of course, it was, it was part of his company as well, as well as a couple other co-founders. Well, when, I, when we bought the company, I was asked to move to Brazil uh, for a, a six to, to nine-month period by our CFO. CFO Lucent right now is Frankie Amelia. He said uh, six to nine months. Uh, he had a good discussion with my wife, and we knew that that wasn't going to be the case because nothing was ever six to nine months. It ended up to be about 25 months. But it was pretty cool in that I was the president of this whole company. And we acquired My job was to integrate called PMI, post-merger integration, integrate this company and all the functions and roles, R&D, et cetera, into losing, and then move back to Naperville, which is exactly what I did 25 months later. I met Augusto uh, through, the, through the result of that acquisition. He, he then moved to Chicago, moved to Naperville. He became VP of, uh, of Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. And so various roles in, in, um, in, within Bell Labs. Uh, and, and fixed, uh, fixed uh, what, you know, convergence, technology, wireline, wireless, and, and various other things. So he, had, as a result of six years of working at Lucent, um, after acquisition, he and I then broke off in December of 2003 and started Dyson Labs. Mm-hmm. Within that, within that uh, transaction, we brought in a couple other director levels uh, that worked for VTEX and worked for Lucent. And by the way, they were working for Lucent for about 15 plus years prior to that, so he knows them all very well. And we asked them if they would be considered, if they would consider being founding or partners of our company. Mm-hmm. They were some of the best, brightest minds um, mm-hmm. that we could find. Frankly, Lucid realized that too. They, they brought more and more R&D down to Brazil than they did to India and China and Poland because they saw the entrepreneurship, the spirit, the, the fire in the belly of what they were getting from the Brazil R&D team and, and under Lucid's leadership. And then I guess to get back to the original question. So in other words, it sounds like the post-merger integration is very similar to what it would have been with a domestic company. It's just the company was located down in Brazil. Exactly. That's right. Is there anything that was different about well, post-merger integration? Well, clearly, you would think. Yeah, clearly, we, in most acquisitions, 80-90% of the people, and certainly the founders who make, make plenty of money, sort of leave. Mm-hmm. They go off and turn around. Mm-hmm. What was different about this acquisition, Mike, frankly, was we bought the, te- we bought the company Everyone in Lucent, the intention was to gain access into the Brazilian marketplace. I saw that, but I saw much more with the people. And mm-hmm. frankly, the different, the different culture, the Brazilian mindset, which I, which I will, hopefully we'll get to, um, the entrepreneurship, I wanted to keep those people as much as possible. So I wanted to not only get access into the Brazilian marketplace, but I wanted to morph the, the mindset of the R&D people, the sales guys, the manufacturing guys to keep those people. So from many respects, in terms of the U.S. acquisition for the U.S. entity, um, this particular, because it was a different culture, and we always, us Americans, quote, unquote, don't really, we, we all think we know what's best. You know, we, we think we, we know 
how to manage businesses and how to, how to do these kind of things, but the reality is if you listen to 12 years, um, in some cases we can learn from our acquisition. So that was much, much different. That was much, much different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's so what I What did you learn from your acquirees? Well, one of the things I learned was, um, frankly, how to be competitive. One, a goose on the back divide. Brazil, you mean? How to be competitive globally. Mm -hmm. For instance, we had R&D centers in Brazil as a result of the acquisition. Poland, India, China. And I'm picking on those four primarily because that's really all, all they were in at the time. And, and of course, the U.S. Mm -hmm. We had Brazil and Abusa's idea was let's have have you know a competitive game within our own company, almost like you're going to submit proposals to company X, Y, and Z outside the company. May the best survival of the fittest win. May the best proposal win. The winners of the proposals were who could develop this box, whether it be a wireline technology, optical technology, wireless, broadband cable. Who could develop this box with the best set of requirements, the best set of features? A lot needs to market in the shortest interval and the cost. And then give that business to to that entity within your company. Create a, a, a create a playground, create an environment whereby you create competition within your own company. It's something that, you know, frankly it's not just loosened. It's a lot of US companies. They have R and D teams and they just you know, it's not really competitive within R and D teams. They're they're their own company, so whatever you get, you get. Mm -hmm. He was saying, let me compete internally. I'm not competing to the point where I want to whack my the customers at my, my own employees at the knees, but what I want to do is I want to get more R&D and prove to you that Brazil knows how to do things. And in fact, he grew his R&D team from 30 plus people to over 300 in the course of like uh, three, four years. It continued to grow until he left. Got many, many designations, the uh, most uh, prolific architecture team, uh, team that had most entrepreneurial mindset, team with, uh, you know, this and that, and a lot of these, a lot of these uh, accommodations, if you will. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and just for the record, typically you spend more time on the first ones and you kind of have to rush through the other ones, so I don't mean to cut Am you I off. I go a little bit too far? Yeah. That's always the case, though. And it's just I don't mean to cut you off, but it's just if we're going to be able to get through everything, sure, I'm going to speed up a little bit. Um, I read a quote from the U.S. Department of Commerce where it said, Brazil is the most advanced Internet e-commerce industry in Latin America. Any insights there? That doesn't surprise me. Um, it's, a, it's a country of 185 million people. Um, their banking is second to none. Their... Uh, how so? What do you mean? Well, there's the systems in terms of their, their um, business processing systems, their IT systems. I mean, they really they take a lot of pride, and, and it's, it's a much much more robust economy than most people think. Frankly, when people read statistics like that, or when I talk to vice presidents of engineers or CPOs, they think of Brazil and of like technology. Help me out, guys. <laughs> it's the way for me to name up. There's supermodels. You have the Amazon. There's a lot of jungles. Copacabana. Copacabana, Ipanema, you know, supermodels, all these things. Where's the technology? Well, the reality is, is with 185 million people, a burgeoning market, um, more and more commerce, banking, universities, you know, Sao Paulo itself is a, is a, is a you know, 10, 11 million people. 
and that that sort of dribbled into Campinas, which is the Silicon Valley, which is where we are headquartered. Aerospace, about 30% of any plane that you get into in the United States is manufactured by Brazil. Uh, Embraer, BNB, RAIR, whatever. Uh, genetics, um, you know, a, a lot of advances in, in medicine and genetics. The point is, is all this requires e-commerce. And it, it basically fosters us, you know, builds the kind of it's, it's almost viral. It's almost like, like a cancer, if you will. So it doesn't surprise me with respect to the amount of cross-border transactions that are taking place more and more in Brazil that you see a lot more e-commerce and much, much greater than most people would ever expect. Okay. And I saw a quote on your website where it said, entrepreneurship as a country characteristic. Yes. And I'm just curious, were you referring to the United States, Brazil, any place in particular, and why is that? Brazil specifically. First of all, that's not, that's not just our website that's saying that. Um, a study was made by the Global Entrepreneur Magazine, GEM, that basically put Brazil as the number one or two in terms of entrepreneurship. Okay. Um, now, where do they get that data? Basically, what they, they've said, um, Brazil 20 plus years ago was a reasonably closed market. So in order to compete, uh, just like in any country, people had to become entrepreneurial. If they didn't work for large corporations, they set up their own businesses. Whatever it happened to be, a flower shop, a software development company, you know, you name it, there are many, many entrepreneurs. You couple that with, you couple that with, um, you know, the university, you have now, uh, and I'll get to the university issue in a minute. We have our highly educated people in electronics and optics, et cetera, who in many cases, the grandparents, the parents, and maybe in some cases themselves, have been entrepreneurs in the past. So that entrepreneur mindset is clearly, and the Wall Street Journal came out with something not too long ago, but the GE and the Worldwide uh, Entrepreneur Manager basically said, if you want entrepreneurs, you know, this is the place to be. And let me just say, my partner, and in his capacity with, with ZPAX, uh, they had a, a, a really neat mantra, if you will, the way they worked prior to the acquisition, tried to also get that incorporated into, into Lucent. And that was sell in the morning, develop in the afternoon, deliver at night to pay for your family's meals the next day. That mindset is phenomenal. There's no procrastination. There's no slack time, and that really is the type of thing that we we happen to be able to build on, like the last, that entrepreneurial spirit. Interesting. I mean, it also says, do that stuff quickly before inflation gets you. Can yeah, you I mean, maybe at the time, that that's how that comes through. Frankly, they'd get a paycheck, and they couldn't go fast enough to a grocery store and, and cash that paycheck and buy food because inflation was a little bit rampant um, in the early 90s or so. Yeah, and just alternatively, um, I spent some time in Poland shortly after things changed, and it was interesting because even though it was a part of the Soviet Union, there was always a strong entrepreneurial culture in Poland as well. And so when things changed, there were a lot of small business people who were ready to ramp up. And I helped uh, 65 small businesses with their sales and marketing and that kind of stuff and actually make some headway. I mean, they understood a lot of the stuff that I was talking about. Uh, which is, I mean, similar experience. And, and you know, the reality is, is Brazil is an environment where it's really sort of, sort of a, a morphing of European culture, I mean, it's not a European um, mindset in Brazil for obvious reasons, and U.S. 
So you get that passion, that desire to want to stick and stay with one company for a long time and look at the churn a little bit and attention with, you know, this American passion, which is really a, a neat hybrid. And this is the type of thing we have with our company. I'm curious, when you say Europeans, any particular parts of Europe? In other words, when I think Brazil, obviously you think Portugal. Yeah. I mean, are we thinking Southern Europe? Because I, I believe there are other influences yeah, there as well. Brazil is a, an absolute melting pot. Um, Brazil has a large Japanese immigration. Mm-hmm. The reason why the reason why it has that is because its borders were open during and post World War II. So a lot of Japanese immigrated into Brazil. In fact, two of two of our partners on our working site in last are in fact Brazilian Japanese. Well, I thought that. Yeah. Um, German. Italian, so you, as you go further south in Brazil, blonde blue-eyed uh, Brazilians come up. So the point is, is it's a, it's a, it's a Italian, Spanish, German, um, Portuguese, mm-hmm. Japanese, of course, uh, you know, native Brazilians. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's neat about that is it truly does have a, 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 a multi-ethnic, multi-lingual and, uh, environment that we that serves us, my company, that lands well, because where can you find engineers that you pay maybe 40%, 30% on the dollar that are very sophisticated in optics and a lot of other areas that can speak Japanese, that, that I can help my Japanese customers, potentially like Fujitsu or others? You can't. If you're in Japan, you're going to pay these guys 120% on what an engineer would be paid in the United States. If you're in, in the United States, you're going to pay... You know, obviously, with the going rate in the United States, but if you have a Japanese speaking, German speaking, let's say Japanese speaking, uh, qualified engineer who's been doing truly great design and engineering and architecture for five, six, seven years, you can speak Japanese, and you can pay them, you know, 40 cents on the dollar. Wow, what a wonderful, what a wonderful business model that is, and what a, what a great proposition that is if I'm dealing with a Japanese customer, which, you know, we're in the process of doing. That also says to me that our second and third generation immigrant families holding on to their family languages as well. And I think when a lot of immigrants come here to the States, they forget their home tongue and just speak English. Absolutely. And let me, let me just say, most very educated Brazilians speak three four languages, certainly the native tongue Portuguese, Spanish, French, Italian, Japanese. And that goes to the heart of of, um, you know, obviously because grandparents, great-grandparents, a very passionate society, a very tightening family society. And that goes right to the heart of why there's such phenomenal retention in companies and why it's rated number one or two globally in terms of retention. You mentioned top company worldwide in terms of retention. Retention of what? Employees. Okay. People, people not necessarily being opportunists going across the street after a year looking for a 20% pay increase like some of my competitors. Mm-hmm. The reality is is, is there's, there's good hiring practice. So let, let me speak to this in two, two respects. Titan Labs has very good hiring processes. Well, we, we, we speak out best and great. And, and what my, my co-founder says, he likes to see the shine in your eye. To see if you really are not just educated from the point of view of technology, but are you a family-oriented person? Because we clearly, we, we want a long-term relationship with our employees. And in an industry like what we're working in, where intellectual property is king, 
We don't want a churn that some of my competitors have, 30, 40, as high as 50%. We don't want employees who we've sunk a lot of money into, and frankly, our customers have sunk money into training. And then all of a sudden, a year later, they walk out the front door, across the street, to ask for a 20% pay increase. Mm -hmm. The Brazilian engineers are paid good enough. Obviously, everything's a function of supply and demand. But they, they had this passion, this desire because of the history of parents, grandparents, and just mindset that they want to stick with the company and we understand that we take good care of them and that, that helps in this. Did you talk with Adarsh about that as much? Because I mean, we talked about his retention in India this yeah. year. It's a, it's a big issue. Um, and I, you know, I didn't want, in, 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 the, uh, in the sense that I respected, um, I've lived in India for a couple of years in order for that. I respect everything about that culture and the society and the people are fantastic. But they have issues. Every country has issues. Retention is one of them. Frankly, my customers are starting to see that as a big chink in their armor. They're starting to say, Jesus, if I train people for two, three months, think a lot of money, and, and open my kimono on all my IP, source code and all that stuff, and some guy who's been working for a company X in Hyderabad or, or, or Delhi or you name it, Bangalore, they're going to walk across the street for 20% because now they know my source code and all this And furthermore, now I have to train more people because they're depleted of resources. I didn't want to bring a professional of that. I was looking at Darsh as trying to bring together a one plus one three type scenario, and maybe we'll get to that. Because I clearly think there's a nice potential win-win situation. He's, he's okay. dealing in a different space. He's dealing sure. uh, not being necessarily carried away with another BPO and IPO um, well, I mean, maybe you've already answered this question. Um, you talked about an Asian influence in Brazil. Um, I guess beyond the Japanese, are there any other Asian influences that are important there? Um, you know, Mike, not that I can think of. I mean, it's really prevalent when you're, when you're in Brazil. There's quite a few Japanese people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, uh, I you know yes, there's Koreans, there's, you know, mainland Chinese, uh, Taiwanese. Mm -hmm. But really, for those reasons, post-World War II and, and mm -hmm. current, our current World War II, quite a few people emigrated directly from Japan into Brazil because the borders were open. So I really don't see much beyond that. They're there, I mean, some okay. Vietnamese, there's no doubt about it, but mm -hmm. really a, from an Asian perspective, uh, it's Japanese. Okay. Um, the whole telecom world suffered a downturn with a lot of the rest of the internet bubble bursting and so on. Did it impact Brazil the same way, or was it impacted any differently than a lot of the rest of the world? Yeah, um, Brazil was not insulated from the downturn, per se. I will say they probably survived the downturn better than most of them all, all economies. And the reason being is because um, teledensity, Penetration of wireless wireline, uh, broadband cable, and various other technologies still needed to be quote unquote consumed. Still needed to be brought. And, and they had the vendors, the local vendors, they had the service providers there, whether it's, you know, Palo Glass, uh, Ampertel, uh, Brazil Telecom, and, and um, a lot of the other wirelines, wireless guys, as well as the, the, the vendors. They were able to, in, in many respects, maintain uh, 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 the necessary economic activity and robustness, if you will, to keep 
to keep going. It wasn't a major death spiral like you saw in Europe and the U.S. Clearly, it wasn't like that. Furthermore, companies, and they have been there for 60, 70, 80 years, Siemens, Alcatel, Ericsson, AT&T Slash Lucy was there from 88 and 9 years, but others who had R&D entities in Brazil for many, many, many years realized that one of the things that was of benefit as they were down in the U.S., hey, I, I can reduce my R&D burn rate, but I can still get a lot of throughput and, and you know, headcount by bringing more R&D to Brazil. And that's in fact what they did. So in some cases, it had a very positive effect on Brazil in the sense that multinationals from Europe and the U.S. put more demand in the R&D resources in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Well, as you mentioned, there was still more that needed to be consumed. I mean, part of the problem with the downturn was a lot of overbuilt capacity and those kinds of things. Yeah, and that wasn't the case in Brazil. I mean, okay. I mean, what was there overcapacity maybe in some areas that I can't think of, but for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, penetration rates needed, needed to be improved, um, mm-hmm. and they, they stuck along their plan. They, they didn't, it's not to say that they, they wavered, they didn't waver from it. It wasn't exactly the plan, but it wasn't the precipitous decline that you saw in the other economies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I believe I saw that you are doing business with a number of different foreign governments. Perception here is that there's a lot of corruption with some of those foreign governments. Have you run into any of that? In, in, the, in the spirit or in the capacity of this indictment, that's absolutely not. Uh, now, if you're talking about my previous experience, uh, have I run into corruption in dealing, doing business in other kinds, inclusive of this? Well, yes. You know, import, export, customs, and, you know, customs. Uh, uh, warehouses and, and, and things like that. And I'm not going to get into specific details, of course, mm-hmm. um, but there uh, there have been instances where certainly corruption has, has crossed my path. I was even in Kuwait right after the war, and uh, there were a lot of really interesting things that went on there. <laughs> Always a good adjective, interesting. Interesting things, yeah. right. Um, well, so in that respect, then I guess, I mean, how recently is it that you've experienced something like that? Is it something that you see getting better, worse? Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't realized any degree of foreign, let me just say Brazil specifically, Brazil government corruption at all. I haven't seen, I haven't seen any of that. Uh-huh. Um, and we've been running this prison for about 18 months now. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, okay, alternatively, I know gangs, organized crime, those kinds of things are big in Brazil as well. Has that impacted you? Yeah, in fact, it has. Um, now, let me just say, once again, I lived there for 25 months. Honestly, guys, I have never seen corruption. I've heard a lot of it. I've read it. Now, some of our customers who um, we talked to, we initially, you know, prospect them. And, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're one of the first reactions is, well, I read about this and read about this. The reality is, is when, when things happen in Brazil, but a lot of the corruption, frankly, is in, in, the, in the bowels of Rio and, and, and Sao Paulo and some of the other outlying areas. We're, we're in the Silicon Valley of campaigns, which is about a, a million five, a million four, a million five people. It is clearly, I mean, it is very, very, very bucolic, you know, high-end, you know, high socioeconomically, um, 
corporation and we'll get to the other ones in some cases I mentioned it. You know, there's there's corruption there, yes. There's car cappings or things like that. I've even had one or two executives from US companies saying, you know, geez, I, I, I have my, my wall um, lifted in, in Brazil. And, you know, my reaction to it is, you know, you can get your wall lifted you know, walking down Michigan Avenue. You know, you have to be smart in terms of where you go and what you do and when you go there and who you're with. Um, corruption is in Brazil. It's not it's not hampered us at all. It's just been one of those types of things, Mike, that frankly I have to deal with when I do talk to executives from U.S. and European companies because it's, it's in the press. But frankly, uh, it's limited to a number of areas in Brazil and it's no different than corruption in Los Angeles or what's taking place today in, uh, you know, in the U.K. with the GAB is going on and all the, you know, other things like that. So it's not a big issue. Okay, so corruption is not, you did say organized crime and gangs maybe, and from what I understand, gangs, organized crime is getting more involved in business. You know, for example, you look to Russia, those kinds of things. Anything similar there? You know, again, um, nothing that I could think of specifically. I mean, the, the, biggest, the biggest thing in business is tax evasion. People mm-hmm. in Brazil put their minds to, to work in some cases. Just uh, like many other countries, on how to avoid um, how to avoid taxation and things like that. Um, you know that that from the sense of uh, that's not organized crime per se. I mean, there were problems with the prison systems in Brazil. Uh, uh, you know, various U.S. Uh, expatriates uh, had some issues, but again, in Rio. But from an organized crime perspective, I really. I can't cite any one personal example. Uh, again, I read what you read. I just don't see it. It's not a media perception. It's real, but it's just, I don't see it. Okay. Um, people are concerned about intellectual property protection. How well protected are you in Brazil? Okay. We, we, are, we abide by the international standards and regulations of, of long court practices there. Mm-hmm. So all the standards with respect to intellectual property are very much consistent in Brazil as they are in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, again, there's statistics out there in terms of privacy and, and things like that. Uh, I will say, it, while it's, it's on record as, as being X percent in Brazil, it's significantly higher than some other economies that work there, and that is our competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but all our contracts are, you know, we sign non-disclosure agreements, and we, we, if there are any, if there's any degree of litigation or arbitration, it's always our, our personal company, and most companies that deal with Brazil are, are under the, the U.S. court system and, and, and court of appeal system. So it's contractual in nature, everything is on the up and up, uh, and if there is any litigation or arbitration, it's usually before a board or a court in the United States. U.S. companies wouldn't be business, nor would I be business if you had to do it. It's not just Brazil. If you had to do it in, you know, if you come all the business in the States or, or, you know, Thailand or whatever, you'd want to bring that arbitration back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in other words, in terms of recourse, basically, U.S. courts so and so on. Right. Um, you talk to percentages of piracy, those kinds of things. Fifty percent, or fifty-six percent of all software in Brazil was pirated in 2000, according to this study. Any thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I would say to that is I, that surprised me. I never saw that. Um, 
you know, again, one of the things that we pride ourselves on because we are a very intellectual property centric company. I mean, we're asking these little companies to share the source code with us. The only thing I would say to that is it goes through the retention issue again, to our company. If you retain people, you keep people, these people are not going to share uh, corporate facts and, and source code with, with other companies. I asked my partner about this one particular thing because I was a little bit amazed at, at that question. And, you know, he said he read the exact, I think it was IBEs or whatever. Or yeah, ABEs. I believe it's the Brazilian software section. Yes. And in the same token, I'm not going to pick on my um, my competition, but it's that same report also said up to 70 plus percent in, in China. So it's not to say that uh, we're better than them, but you know, because 50% is high. In fact, that's what that's what he said. That may be what it is. I, I, I don't know. The comparable statistic supposedly here in the state is about 20%. Exactly. Right. So it's all relative. It's all relative. I, I just, I really, you know, having lived in those environments, frankly, I don't see that. In, I don't. I personally don't see that. Didn't see that in India and China. So mm-hmm. it's not just Brazil. I don't see that in Brazil. I just don't. I don't feel, I don't live, live those, those, that data that I'm reading and that you're sharing with me. Um, but it is where people can write certain things and okay. I'm going to take it as Okay. Um, I mean, I get back to intellectual property protection and recourse and those kinds of things. Who takes on the risk? Does it lie with you or your client to defend international property issues? Well, we clearly... The risk in, in, in terms of any punitive damages mm-hmm. is on diving lands. Okay. Um, and, and, and once again, subject to arbitration and or litigation in the United States. Mm-hmm. We couldn't do business otherwise. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can only say that our lifeline within our company is clearly us building confidence, or our customers building confidence in us in terms of our, of our ability to execute and maintain a, a tremendous degree of privacy with respect to their intellectual property. If we ever are, if there's even a perception, right or wrong different, that that's being violated, we do not survive. So actually coming from a Bellwebs background and mentality, um, as, my, as I have with Lucent and my partner sitting in the situation after acquisition, um, we, we position ourselves with our customers as understanding the value of your assets and IP. And that's you know, clearly, independent of Brazil or any other economy, that's clearly what, what, what we ride on. And kind of, you know, if you met my partner, I think you, you see that he's a very genuine person who takes it very seriously. And I don't mean to sound critical mm-hmm. by posing a lot of these questions. It's just I'm trying to it think of... Exactly it's right? Well, exactly. It's just I'm trying to think of questions that potential clients, whatever, yeah. might be concerned about. So I'm just trying to give you a chance to address them. Once uh, executives... It's really funny. The, the cycle goes, well, before we talk about what you guys can do for us, you know, talk to me about the crime and the piracy and, you know, all the garden. You have, like, a two-minute discussion on that. Because they realize no matter where they're going to go, there will be piracy. No matter where they're going to go, no matter where they go, there will be, there will be crime. Um, that is something that's a very, very, in this business, in any business, especially in software and hardware, you know, catering to U.S. and European R&D teams, 
You get to you get to address it. And that's how we get you know, get on to now what can we do for you. Okay. Okay. Um now I mean my understanding is Brazil is only a nine billion dollar software market. Half of it's produced locally and they only export two and a half percent. So you sourcing things out of Brazil sounds like you're doing something that very few other people are. What have you seen that's not reflected in those numbers? Well, putting the numbers aside, um, the reality is, is we we have a team that's been you know a, a very a very degree of uh, experience and, and, and understanding how communication is designed. We are, and I hope I'm getting to your point, we are pretty much, for all intents and purposes, we don't know another competitor out there in Brazil that's focusing on third-party R&D to the U.S. Now, independent of the $9 billion and so much exported, that, that stuff is, to me, are, are, are variables that are, um, that may be accurate, in fact, I think are, mm-hmm. but they don't sway, I mean, it's, it's we're, I think we're dealing in a different in a different point. We, we have a sustainable business with, with very, you know, genetically bred engineers that are catering to U.S. and European companies. The market, like I said, 20 plus years ago was, was closed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now it's expanding significantly. And believe me, if you look at the data, there are more cross-border transactions, while maybe only two and a half percent. Mm-hmm. It is it is growing quite significantly, but from the point of view of, of an outsourcing company like we are catering to to uh, U.S. Uh, vendors, clearly every day you open up the paper, it's the thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely mm-hmm. it's, and the perception is is, is, is you know, Brazil doesn't have that horsepower, that that, that, that pedigree of uh, engineers, and, and it's just simply not true. So that in itself. Is um, you know is, is building momentum. Furthermore, just think about what's going on here. Um, just the fact that Lucent acquired Vitax and Petit has sort of morphed into this diamond lens thing. So I don't know if you're making connecting the dots there, but the reality is, is is there's more and more of this type of stuff. Motorola and Cisco and Qualcomm and Hewlett Packard. Carly Fiorina was down there before she's part of from Hewlett Packard and said that this, this is an unbelievable burgeoning economy with wealth, a wealth of resources. Motorola is putting more and more R&D down there. Um, uh, who just, oh, Ericsson. Ericsson does their worldwide CDMA development in Brazil. Everything that's done, software and hardware-wise, uh, from a CDMA perspective, is done in Brazil. So you're seeing more and more of the onus being put on Brazilian entities, and you're seeing more and more cross-border transactions. Slow, but it's evolving. Well, and I guess just to let you know the numbers that I was talking about, I guess the software market in Brazil, according to what I saw, grew from 8 to 9 million in a year or two, so that's pretty significant growth. Um, local production was about 4.5, 4.6 million, and the exports grew from 100 million to 200 million in a span of two or three years. So I guess that is pretty strong growth, but it's, just, it's still relatively The absolute numbers are small, but growth is that speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the market we're competing with, in like, you know, 
outsourcing R&D is about $130 billion in the business. Mm-hmm. And within that $130 billion, I believe, I want to say $25, $30 billion is specific to telecom domain type engineering. Mm-hmm. That is the market we are targeting. Mm-hmm. And that expects to grow 20 to 30% per annum. Companies understand that the value and appreciate appreciate the bill of having third-party R&D contractors. Mm-hmm. And um, Brazil, by hook or by crook, one way or the other, and I, I have no, I'm, not, I'm on no personal mission other than to make this business successful. Brazil will get on the map in terms of, you know, uh, you know being technology savvy because, in fact, they are. And, and we will do more contracts, and we, will, we'll, we expect to see, in fact, we're starting to see a couple companies that are, are seeing us and they're trying to replicate our model and cater to, you know, having a guy like myself. In Chicago, we have a guy that's comparable to me, you know, my, my counterpart, if you will, in, uh, in various other areas, San Jose area and, you know, Christian Palmer area and Boston, you know, cultivating business. And they're saying, hey, this is a good model. We're going to use this. Okay. Um, I, I guess getting more specifically to Dicam. Where are your customers? I mean, I believe you've mentioned U.S., Europe. Yeah. We, we are clearly focusing on, on U.S. Mm-hmm. We also are focusing on Europe, EMEA. Mm-hmm. We have two customers in, in, in the U.S. and one customer in, in the London area. Mm-hmm. That is our primary target, target level. Mm-hmm. Um, R&D pipelines have been starved over the last four years. Uh, innovation has, you know, been somewhat starved to a degree. U.S. companies and European companies are a little bit apprehensive about bringing full-time people back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're a nice alternative uh, to, to those to those particular customers. We're price right, we have the right mindset, the right skills. Mm-hmm. And are they primarily carriers, hardware manufacturers? They're, uh, they're primarily. They're primarily. Uh, vendor, vendor company, carrier infrastructure vendor company in the wire line, wire lifts, VoIP, broadband cable, and uh, uh, an optical arena. Mm-hmm. So we we have segmented our customers into three main tiers. Tier one would be like the the billion plus dollar businesses mm-hmm. like the Lucent and uh, West Powell's and Powell you know, Labs and the list goes on in there. Um, then the tier two, which would be less than a billion, but greater than 200 plus million. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the small startups. Now, it's the small startups that are in the 10 million to 100 million, 150 million range, where they're growing quickly. You know, they may have started up two years ago, three years ago. They're trying to get a media gateway product out there. They're trying to get their IP to market quicker. They need bench strength. They need people who've been there and done that in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Those are clearly some of our, our target customers that, that are really we're appealing to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, because I've worked in the industry uh, for 20 years, I know a lot of the presidents and vice presidents and CEOs. So it's not like they're just dealing with Brazil. They're dealing with me, who they've dealt with for 15 years. I just happen to be a founder of a company. I happen to be the main conduit into the United States. With an office in Chicago, and there's a sense of comfort, a degree of comfort in terms of that brings. Okay. Um, I guess getting to your organization in Brazil, are you guys a wholly owned subsidiary 
branch, joint venture, limited yeah, liability yeah, company. Limited liability company refers to as a limited tie in mm -hmm. Portuguese. A limited liability company. Okay. And so, are there any differences between a limited liability company in Brazil versus a limited liability company here? Same. It's literally the same. There are no, Because um, I know that there are more recent um, iterations of limited liability companies. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the details, but it's just, I know there are more variants, if you will. More variants in Brazil versus Here in the U.S. Yeah, we are clearly like, if you will, like a subchapter S core, a limited liability company that Mm -hmm. that has articles of incorporation that registered with, with the government, tax paying entity, mm -hmm. um, you know, really uh, having set up some limited liability companies in the past United States, you know, I've seen no material difference in the industry. Okay. The only real difference is, is because I am not a Brazilian um, citizen, Mm -hmm. And I'm working through the LLC. There had to be various things I had to do in terms of registering to, to the government, but for all intents and purposes, everyone paid their equity. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, we, we had to report you know, our financial statements to the, to the uh, you know local, you know, I, their local IRS, and we paid in capital. The, the financial structure is the same, and the legal structure is the same. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you're a shareholder, and yes. I mean, is the ownership? majority Brazilian in Brazil, or are there any other owners who have majority interest? Um, between my co-founder and so myself, we own the majority of the shares. Mm -hmm. And our okay. co-founders have the tax balance. Mm -hmm. um, okay. You know, that's in essence the same, same way that we operate in the United States. I mean, we have paid in capital mm -hmm. uh, of X percent, of Y percent, and the balance of the, the partners have you know, a couple of percent of these. I mean, everyone, and what we plan on doing as, as just a, a, you know, a corporate, not a strategy, but a corporate edict, if you will, is we're bringing in new partners that can have very significant value. Uh, if in fact, the dean of the university mm -hmm. uh, may go off and, and on his second path, if you will, career, he may become one of the partners. So we may give the X percent. Mm -hmm. to him and, and what a wonderful addition to our team. So we're trying to build that human capital, that level of sophistication and intensity. And that gives us great access to the university, too. I mean, think about it. Well, but I mean, I guess from my perspective, I was more concerned about foreign governments sometimes are concerned about foreign ownership. And so if your interest is greater than 50%, you know, they may look at you differently. It's not. It's not as true. It's not as true. But, it's, you know, is what it is, but it's not very Okay. Um, why Campinas? What other companies are there? Okay, so Campinas is 45 minutes north of Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. Why Brazil? Why Campinas? I think I can answer that question the same way. The proximity to the U.S. is, mm -hmm. is phenomenal. It's a 10 hour mass flight from O'Hare Airport to Sao Paulo and a 45 minute drive from Sao Paulo. Campinas clearly is the Silicon Valley of Latin America, not just Brazil, but Latin America. Unicamp, which is a major technical university, is right within about a four-mile radius, a four-mile drive from our office. As I said, companies like 
all kind of losing Motorola, Cisco, Ericsson, Alcatel, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Selectron, Samina, Celestica, a lot of the, the, the big names. I mean, these are not, these are multinationals, European and, and, and U.S. based, are, are based in Cantina, primarily because the universities are there. And it's no different than the, the MITs and the Stanfords and why, you know, why, are, they, why are they still looking down? because the universities in many cases are not because it's an economic uh, windfall because we're paying dearly for those headcounts. Um, but Campinas is it has all the infrastructure, it has everything you need, inclusive of wonderful weather. Campinas is the idea to hear. Believe me, I mean it is phenomenal. Well, that's kind of Silicon Valley like it. Well that's kind of Silicon Valley like as well. And and, and and some of our customers have said, you know, wow this is really a cool place. This is really neat. Not only do I, can I take a, a non-stop flight from San Francisco to, to San Paulo, as opposed to transiting to London and down to Delhi, you know, 12-hour time zone swings or 11 half hour time zone, actually more than the rest of them. You're only a couple hours ahead of us. And we'll get to that question in a minute. But the reality is, the continuous is, uh, and it's a major, major, um, cargo, the largest cargo import-export facility in all of Latin America, UPS, FedEx, all the big guys. The airport in Campinas, which is five miles from our headquarters facility, is mainly a, a, a cargo airport for companies like I mentioned, FedEx, UPS, FedEx. And the reason being is because 365 days a year, it has, you know, give or take a day or two, absolutely impeccable conditions to travel into and to fly out. They are in the process, the Brazilian government are in the process of changing the Campinas Airport into an international airport that would be an off-road from Sao Paulo, which is a great airport, but frankly, you don't want to be traveling into Sao Paulo all the time because it's a very good car. It's like London, it's, you know, Heathrow, it's like, you know, O'Hare. Then, then it's 47 minutes driving over the facility. When and if that happens, and if that's what will happen within the next year or so, this will add even further to power of differentiator. Because now you can fly right into Campinas, right from Dallas or Boston or Chicago or New York, you know, you know 10 minute shuttle drive to our office and bang over there. I mean, obviously, a lot of big, very successful companies are there. How big are their organizations in Campinas? Well, Motorola has several thousand people. Um, IBM has several thousand people. IBM, um, Intel has, I don't know how many people. I can get you a more specific data in my job. Okay. Um, this, I mean, these are not just little branch offices. Well, I mean, the reality is, is they're not. Uh, there's a couple, what I, some of the tier one companies that, that I talked about earlier, less than, say, uh, 100, 200 million. In order to compete in Brazil, obviously you have to have an office and you have to look and smell and feel like a Brazilian and you can say, yeah. we run a, a small 150 square foot space and you maybe there's one or two sales guys. This is not what we're talking about. There are companies like that there that are U.S. companies. But the reality is some of the big guys are multinationals. I mean, you know, you know, acres and acres and acres of, of property, which is abundant there, rolling hills, trees, and nice, beautiful countries. Complex in, in terms of Motorola, Qualcomm, and, and I don't know how big Cisco's area is. Microsoft is one company that we're starting to deal with that's really small-time purposes, not there. 
Um, and, you know, this is, you know, we're, we're at the beginning stages, so it's pretty, it's not an easy platform. But the reality is, is you know, that is just one company um, of the more recognizable ones. But these are big operations, five, six hundred people, two thousand people. Okay. And you mentioned Campinas is the Silicon Valley of Latin America. Is there any other city or region that it's similar to? And the reason I ask that is there's a lot of different cities or regions throughout the world that claim to be Silicon Valley of Germany, of Europe, of right. wherever else. And I'm just wondering if there's another city or region that it's similar to. So, I mean, for example, there's the Silicon Highway outside of Boston, Highway 128. 128. So I was just going to mention, um, in many, many respects, the, the, the Highway 128 corridor in Boston, a number of our customers, our potential customers, are there. Mm-hmm. Same look and feel, uh, albeit the difference in the weather. I mean, mm-hmm. the reality is, is there's I-88 corridor in Naperville, where you get amical research and, and Fermi Labs and, and Bell Labs. And in many cases, and we've had Brazilians that, in my previous capacity, um, come to Naperville for two, three, four years, live in, live in the suburbs, like the downfall of Naperville, Naperville Island. Can't tell the difference between Naperville. Mm-hmm. Boston, the 128 quarter. Plano, Richardson, Texas, the ninth, I think it's the 95 quarter in there, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of companies and a lot of, you know, certainly, you know, you have the core every year. FTC or the South South and you have the, the Sprint and one of the major service providers so a lot of um, a lot of uh, other uh, varieties and stuff they're all the whole technology quarter very same looking feel same looking feel as, as Silicon Valley in California there is probably the most resembling because of the weather issue is, uh, society in general and, and, the, and the intellect in terms of the university campus environment things like that just part of the reason I ask the question as well is Silicon Valley, at least in my mind, in the world, is different because they have essentially an ecosystem which takes people from the colleges and universities, brings them up to big companies, startups, whatever, and just they have their own self-contained environment that I don't think any place else in the world has really been able to replicate, and everyone wants to, but it's just Again, just given the relationships between universities, VCs, companies, everybody wants that, but I don't think they've achieved it yet. And so, in some ways, I can see them being similar to Silicon Valley, but it's just in some ways I'm yeah, better than it is. I think it's an often overused analogy. And that's yeah. why I asked the question. But the reality is, from the point of view, it triggers something in the ecosystem. Um, it really is a Brazil in many sense it's an ecosystem. I mentioned they had electronic and you know, and stuff, but then, you know, uh, I'm not sure if they have the level of sophistication in terms of the way the fabrication plans and things like that that you get in Silicon Valley. But they do manufacture. There's, there's, so there's R&D, there's manufacturing. It's a self-contained environment, environment similar to what you would see in Silicon Valley. You kind of found that with Unicamp, with, with best University, arguably in Latin America, um, and, I'll, and I'll talk to that right now. Unicamp, between Unicamp and Sao Paulo, University of Sao Paulo, they pump out approximately 2,700 PhDs in electrical in- a year, in electrical engineering, optics, um, genetics, aerospace, 
you name it. Um, I'm not talking about just business. I mean, that's business, but many, many, many in sciences. Mm-hmm. And you compare that to the University of California at Berkeley, MIT, Stanford, and um, University of Wisconsin at Madison. Total all those four. And that's what those two, St. Paulo and, and Unicamp, have equivalent of 2,700 PhDs. So, you know, once again, Mike, I can't emphasize enough. It's, it's perhaps one of the best kept secrets from a technology point of view. Campaign is like Brazil. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm a, I try not to be biased because I, I did live in, I lived in Hyderabad, I lived in, in Bangladesh, I lived in, in China and Japan and all great economies and great, but there's something there. And I kind of found that with proximity for our customers, it's a really neat thing. Yeah, just, I went to Brazil, and I might have mentioned on the phone a while ago, two years ago, and it was more of a pleasure trip as opposed to a business trip. It was just seeing the size and scope of Sao Paulo kind of blew me away. Yeah. To consider, I mean, I thought the population was more like 17 million as opposed to the 11 or 12 million. It could, it could be that much. Yeah. And it's just, it's bad. to think that's two and a half times the city of Chicago is mind-boggling to me. Yeah, that, that's why we're looking forward to Tim Phoenix's uh, airport opening up because well, the one person person you don't want when you fly into Brazil is Sao Paulo. Polluted. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of elbow room. Mm-hmm. You know, there is crime, 